Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your goodness. Thanks for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Lord, we just uh, counted a privilege to sit at your feet and to hear from you. And so please, Lord, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit and have your way with us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, everybody turn to Ezekiel chapter 13. Lord willing, we'll read 13, 14, 15 today. 15 is very short. Don't freak out. <laughs> to which you say, yeah, I've heard that before. <laughs> yeah. So Ezekiel, as you know, uh, was taken captive to Babylon in the second of three conquests of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And they were conquested, not because necessarily the Babylonians were stronger, though they were, but because of the sin and idolatry of the Jewish people there in Judah and its capital city, Jerusalem, right? And so, um, you know, there, Ezekiel was carried off in the second of three deportations. The first was in 605 B.C., the second in 597 B.C., that's when Ezekiel went, and the third was in 586 B.C. And as you can imagine, sort of uh, socially, culturally, politically, Prior to the final demise of Jerusalem and Judah, if you will, in 586, prior to that time, you know, there's this sort of collective idea like, are we going to come back or are we going to recover or is the ship going down? And, um, and so there's a sort of a difference in ideology in the, in the time, uh, both in, amongst the Jews in, remaining in Jerusalem and those Jews captive in Babylon. Many uh, were saying, well, hey, we just need to, you know, rally our troops and do this and that, and we'll bring those captives back, and we'll live happily ever after, and we'll beat the Babylonians away, and they'll leave us alone. And um, that was not the plan of God. The plan of God was to bring uh, punishment, uh, to bring justice, to carry the Jewish people off to Babylon for 70 years and then bring them back by his grace. And so this was all being prophesied there in Jerusalem by the prophet Jeremiah and in Babylon by the prophet Ezekiel and no doubt Daniel who would have been a contemporary of his at the time who was in Babylon at the time as well. But anyway, so all that to say, that's the backdrop. And the backdrop is now we have conflicting messages. One says, hey, we're going we're gonna to recover. And the other says, no, you need to settle in at Babylon. You're going to be there for 70 years. And you ever notice that there's conflicting messages in a culture? You ever notice there's conflicting messages in a culture? Do we hear conflicting messages today? Right? And we all know that... Uh, there's an effort, and I'm not being, uh, you know, my goal in going into one of these tirades is to say, is to not uh, divulge what side I might be on, right? But, you know, there's, there's like, whatever the topic, there's like the camp that says this, and they accuse this camp of what? Misinformation, Right? Uh, of lying, of being wrong, right? And this camp rises up and they accuse this group of misinformation, of lying, of being wrong. And what do you got? You got just a bunch of back and forth uh, verbal volleyball, right? 
and that's the reality. It's nothing new. Um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, as Solomon taught us. And so we find that in the scene there in, uh, in this time in Babylon. So that's the setting. Chapter 13, verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to their own... Say, I'm sorry, say to those prophets, those who prophesy out of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. So, son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who prophesy and say to those who prophesy out of their own heart, hear the word of the Lord. And so, first of all, we think of prophecy as foretelling the future, right? And that is part of it, but really particularly in the context of biblical prophecy, that's a part of it, but it's a small part of it. Uh, another part of it is really any declaration that comes from the Lord. When the Lord gives a message to a person to speak to people, that's really a prophetic word, particularly in the Old Testament scriptures, right? And the prophetic word might be repent. That would be a message from God. Right? And so when uh, these prophets were talking, they would say, Thus says the Lord. Right? Like if I stood here and I said, Thus saith the Lord. Well, then what I'm about to say needs to be from the Lord. And frankly, uh, I don't want that responsibility. Right? I, so, so I might say, I think the Lord might be leading me to say this. Right? And that's okay. It's okay to, uh, I wouldn't say hedge, but you understand what I'm saying. It's okay to, um, I mean, if the Lord, I guess if the Lord told me very directly I'm supposed to do this and I really believe that's what I was supposed to do, of course I'm going to do it. Right? But these prophets were presuming and there's a lot of presuming that goes on uh, throughout history. And there's, I think there's a lot of presuming that goes on today in the body of Christ, if I can say it graciously. And the problem is that anyone can claim to have a word from the Lord. Anyone can say, thus saith the Lord. Right? And when you say that, it better be from the Lord. Right? And so we, as recipients of those messages, need to have discernment. Okay? So, what are some tools for discernment? Number one, any word from God does not contradict the Scripture. Any word from God does not contradict the Scripture, period. And I hope we said it, uh, I refer you back to last week when we talked about um, at the end. Um, you know, that whole thing, Zedekiah is going to get carried off to Babylon, but he's not going to see Babylon and how that all played out. And the take-home message of that is God's Word does not need to be fixed. God's Word does not need to be modified. God's Word does not need to be made culturally relevant. God's Word does not need to be amended for today. Because God wrote His Word. If God's Word needs that much help, I have to ask the question, did it really come from God, the maker of heaven and earth? No. I mean, it did come from God. It doesn't need that kind of help. And so we don't need to fix God's Word. And so any prophetic word 
that we might hear does not contradict Scripture, number one. Number two, any word from God does not endorse sin. Well, you say, duh, to which I say, yeah, duh. Like, we have to say that. Any word from God does not endorse sin, period. And as a matter of sort of pattern, I won't say any now, but I'll say most quote-unquote false prophecies go like this. You're doing fine. You're okay. You're good. You don't need to repent. You're good just the way you are. You don't need to surrender your life to the Lord. You're good. That's the essence of a false prophecy. And that was clearly the essence that they were getting uh, during this time of Ezekiel. I believe with all my heart, discernment is one of the greatest dangers for the church today. And if I could, I'll just break it down. Is that okay? Because I said if I could. Is it okay if I just break it down? Okay. I think discernment is dangerous today because often people, let's say in this position, in my position, right? It's maybe unpopular for me to say we need to repent. Does that make sense? And if I say things like, oh, you're awesome. You're doing great. You just keep on sinning. That's okay. There's grace for that. And if I say it as a pastor or a prophet, then I'm saying it with some degree of sort of self, uh, self-imposed authority. Does that make sense? So if I say, hey, you're okay, then you, what do you do? You like me. And I want to be what? Liked. And not to get more complicated, but if I'm a pastor of a church, maybe my provision might be tied to how much you like me. That we're getting real honest now, right? You know, if I've got an overhead, you know, you guys show up, and I hope you just show up and don't really worry about the rent payment or the utility payment. You might worry about that this morning. I wonder what they pay, you know. I hope you don't worry about that, right? But the pastor often does. I don't worry about it, right, by the way. I don't worry about it here. This is a low overhead operation, period. Uh, Intentionally, right, deliberately. But, and the reason, well, and not to dig this hole deeper, but the, the reason fundamentally that this is a deliberately low overhead operation is that I, in my, in my conviction, in my heart, from early on, I never wanted to have to face that temptation of I got to fill the seats and fill the box. That's just the honest truth. I never wanted to have to deal with that temptation. And so one way to deal with it is to try to seek the Lord. But a a very tangible way is to minimize the overhead. Simple profit and loss statement, understanding there. Yeah, that's how that rolls. And so the danger is we have this temptation 
to not call sin, sin, because we want to fill the seats and fill the box. But the reality is, we must call sin, sin, because that's the only way to get right with God. What do I want for us ultimately, myself included? I want us to be right with God. And we don't get right with God without repentance of sin. We don't get right with God without acknowledging that we, Ephesians chapter 2, that we read earlier, we don't get right with God without acknowledging that we were dead in trespasses and sins. We weren't like people that need a little bit of help, or people that need a little guidance, or people that need a little counsel, or people that need a little encouragement. We were dead in trespasses and sins. And we were made alive by Jesus Christ. Period. And so, that's the, that's the danger. Warren Wiersbe said this, I like this. Popularity is not a test of truth. Isn't that the truth? Popularity is not a test of truth. But we can all be lulled into thinking that a little bit because as sort of the temptation to be liked kind of plays itself out, next thing you know, that could be sort of mainstream Christian thought. And next thing you know, you've got a movement of mainstream Christian thought. And one thing you need to do is just kind of maybe put the Bible to the side and tell a lot of good jokes and stories and, and you know, books and psychology and self-help and this and that and this and that, things that kind of tune us up a little bit. And next thing you know, you don't have the absolute truth of the absolute word of God that doesn't need to be fixed, by the way. And you get this whole thing. So that's what was going on in Jerusalem. And God tells Ezekiel, you need to call out those false prophets. Thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who follow their own spirit and have seen nothing. So false prophet speaks out of his own heart there, verse 2. They follow their own spirit. And let me just say this while I'm, while I'm ranting. I'm sorry if you've heard this rant before, but um, the good news is if you've heard it before, uh, you'll hear it again. And if you haven't heard it before, you'll probably still hear it again. But this is one of my um, most heartfelt rants. And that is this. Modern psychology or modern day thought or, you know, I'm just trying hard not to be offensive. Modern Christianity, modern lots of things will tell you that, you know, if you really want to do something or think something, what you need to do is follow your heart. Follow your heart, man. Follow your heart, man. And if you don't take anything from today, please get this. That is a lie from hell. Follow your heart, man. I mean, you hear it everywhere. And you even hear it in church. And you hear it in Christian bookstores. And you won't hear it here. Because what you'll hear instead are the words of Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning in verse 5. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness. 
and the salt land which is not inhabited. So don't trust in man or his heart. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought nor cease from yielding fruit. Verse 9, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Don't follow your heart. It's desperately wicked and deceitful, according to Jeremiah. From the word of the Lord. Don't follow your heart. And so these people, these false prophets, back in Ezekiel's day, are following their own heart. O oh, Israel, your prophets, your prophets are like foxes in the deserts. Well, the foxes in the deserts in those days, the idea was they were just scavengers, like wild dogs, like coyotes, right? Just scavenging up whatever they can get their hands on. You've not gone up to the gaps in the, to build the wall for the house of Israel to stand in the battle on the day of the Lord. And so, um, you know, the idea was that a brave soldier would go into the gaps, sort of the gap in the, in the, in the wall of soldiers, right? To fill the gaps. You know, God would tell, will tater, tell, later tell Ezekiel, I was looking for a man to stand in the gap. And I couldn't find anybody. God wants us to stand in the gap. There are some pretty glaring gaps. Some pretty glaring gaps in ideology, in biblical truth, in the body of Christ today. Much less in the culture at large. And we need to stand in the gap. God tells these people, you've not done that. Verse 6, they have envisioned futility and false divination, saying, thus says the Lord. But the Lord has not sent them, yet they hope that the word may be confirmed. Have you not seen a futile vision? And have you not spoken false divination? You say the Lord says, but I have not spoken. And so the Lord's calling him out. It's like they're trying to talk themselves into believing that their optimistic words will come true. You know, I don't, want to mean, I don't mean any disrespect, but I've seen so many times people in desperate situations that come up with, like, the words out of their mouth express like this ideology. Like, people might say, so-and-so's in a better place. Well, so-and-so's in a better place if he was right with Jesus. But so-and-so's not in a better place because you wish him to be in a better place. It doesn't work that way. And I don't want to go through this life, much less the next life, with that kind of hope, like I hope I'm right. Right? You don't want that. But we have the scripture to stand on, right? And as we evaluate and study, is this a valid source of truth? Yes. And as we study it, we recognize, yes, it is. Because the truth is, the Bible is full of these absolute take-it-or-leave-it statements. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus said. Well, think about that for a second. I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
a statement made by Jesus Christ himself. That statement is either, I mean, just according to basic fundamental laws of logic, that statement is either true or it's false. Right? When he makes a claim like that, no one comes to the Father except through me. You can't, like, there's no gray area. You can't say, well, yeah, that applies to people in such and such context or such and such culture. No. I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's either true or it's false. We've got to deal with that. If it's false, God bless you. Then I'm not going to say he's in a better place as I'm standing there looking at his casket. If it's true, then I have to ask, what are you doing with that? Does your life reflect the fact that you believe it's true? Right? That's why Matthew chapter 7 tells us there's two roads. There's one that leads this way and there's one that leads this way. There's no gray area road. Right? And the Bible's full of these absolute statements. That's why you hear me all the time. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God Almighty. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's about as absolute of a statement as you can get. What does that tell me? It tells me most of the Scripture is pretty reliable, man, except for that one part that I don't like. No! It's either all true, and if it's not all true, guess what? Your mom ever tell you don't pull the thread out of that sweater? I tested her on that once when I was a kid, right? Never stops, does it, right? You start unraveling the Bible, guess what? You might as well have strong hands because you're going to be unraveling it till the day you die. You can't unravel the Bible. It's either all true or it's all unreliable. I would submit that it's all true, right? So these, these false prophets, they're like, we hope that everything's going to go like we say. Well, guess what? That's bad news. That's bad news. We don't want that kind of hope. We want the hope that we can stand on. Verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord, because you have spoken nonsense and envisioned lies, therefore I am indeed against you, says the Lord God. My hand will be against the prophets who envision futility, who divine lies. They shall be, not be in the assembly of my people, nor be written in the record of the house of Israel, nor shall they enter into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And so God has a particular judgment for these false prophets uh, because they're leading people astray. You know, James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. Influencing others is responsibility to be taken seriously. I take that seriously because I'm here, and I'm hopefully influencing people. Notice he says, once, this, once you realize the truth as it plays out, then you shall know that I am the Lord. I counted up. This phrase, then you shall know that I am the Lord, is mentioned 64 times in the book of Ezekiel. And that testifies to the fact that the whole idea of the book of Ezekiel is, you know what, you need to repent. You need to repent. If you don't, God's going to bring judgment. And when he does, then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord. 
but at that point it'll be too late. Verse 10, because they indeed they have seduced my people saying peace, peace when there is no peace. And one builds a wall and they plaster it with untempered mortar. Say to those who plaster it with untempered mortar that it will fall. There will be a flooding rain o you, and you, O great hailstones, shall fall and a stormy wind shall tear it down. Surely when the wall has fallen, will it not be said to you, where is the mortar with which you plastered it? So these people, these false prophets have quote-unquote, according to the Lord, seduced my people. We don't want that to be said of us, right? That we led people into sin. I don't want to be a guy who leads people into sin. I want to lead people into righteousness. Now, ultimately, it's your responsibility to take, with that, take, take it or leave it, right, the information that's been given to you. But as a person who's sharing information, I don't, I don't want to lead anyone into sin. And how did they do that? By declaring peace when they should have declared warning. By declaring peace when they should have declared warning. Shame on me if I ever tell you that most of the Bible is true. Shame on me if I ever tell you that most most of the Bible is reliable. Shame on me if I tell you that the way to go to heaven is by Jesus or being good. Or Jesus and something else. Shame on me if I tell you anything other than the truth of the Scripture. As best as I can discern it. And the analogy he gives here is, is, he calls it untempered mortar. In a sense, it, uh, the, the context is like uh, whitewash. Like you have this weakened structure and you whitewash it to make it look good. Is that common today? You bet it is. I remember when I was a kid, I used to go to uh, farm auctions with my dad. And I remember one time, I forget what it was. He needed a something or other, a widget, right? Because that's what dads do, they play with widgets they just grow up and it's a different set of toys. You know what I mean? And so uh, I forget what widget he needed. I think it was like a plow or something. And there was one there that had a beautiful fresh coat of paint on it. I said, Dad, there you go. You could buy that. You know what he told me? Never buy anything at an auction that's got a fresh coat of paint on it. Right? That stuck with me. He's like... That's covering something up. (laughs) Right? These people, they're like, you know, you got this unstable, you know, I picture this unstable plaster mortar thing that's full of cracks and foundational challenges, and you just put whitewash over it to make it look good? Could that describe maybe much of the church today? And again, I don't want to be critical. I just want to call it out. I just want to call out what the Word says. That's what they were doing, and I believe that's what we're doing oftentimes. And we've got to be careful about that. Super careful. And he says this flooding rain is going to come. It's going to come like great hailstones on this untempered mortar. You know, Matthew 7 says, He who hears these words of mine and does not do them, he's like a foolish man, build his house on what? Sand. Rains come. Floods come. House falls. Verse 13, therefore thus says the Lord God, I will cause a stormy wind to break forth in my fury and there shall be a flooding rain in my anger and great hailstones in fury to consume it. So I will break down the wall you have plastered with untempered mortar and bring it down to the ground so that its foundation will be uncovered. It will fall 
and you will be you shall be consumed in the midst of it then you shall know that I am the Lord again spoken that same sentence so when the storm comes there's going to be destruction and again you have to ask the question man does God seem like he's got an attitude or is too harsh or anything like that and you know first of all God is God we he makes the rules and we don't right secondly we got to keep this in mind God wants us to surrender to him. God wants us to not trust in ourselves. God wants us to not follow our own heart. The pass-fail test of this life is, did we surrender our lives to God through the blood of Jesus Christ or not? And if, it's, if the answer is, or not, then oftentimes what do we find? We find like this effort to like try to make ourselves good or try to make ourselves worthy or try to make ourselves cleaned up spiritually or something like that. And God says, no, don't even try. That doesn't work. I'm going to bring a storm and this untempered mortar that you trusted in is going to crash. Verse 15, thus, I will, thus will I accomplish my wrath on the wall and on those who have plastered it with untempered mortar. So those that have been deceived and those that are deceivers, the, the false prophets. And I will say to you, the wall is no more, nor those who plastered it, that is, the prophets of Israel who prophesy concerning Jerusalem and who see visions of peace for her when there is no peace, says the Lord God. And again, I just want to bring it home. There's lots of bad information out there. There's lots of bad information out there. And it comes from all different kinds of motivation. Usually it's a desire to be liked by the guy that's, that's given the bad information. But there's lots of bad information out there, and we need to discern it through the truth of Scripture. And everything that we hear in a Christian book, in a podcast, whatever, even here, needs to be discerned through the filter of the Scripture. Likewise, verse 17, Son of man, set your face against the daughters of your people who prophesy out of their own heart, prophesy against them and say, Thus says the Lord God, Woe to the women who sew magic charms on their sleeves and make veils for the heads of people with every height to hunt souls. Will you hunt the souls of my people and keep yourselves alive? And will you profane me among my people for handfuls of barley and for pieces of bread, killing people who should not die and keeping people alive who should not live by your lying to my people who listen to lies? And so there's this other sort of thing going on there in Jerusalem that these women were basically making magic charms as a part of their pagan idol worship, right? And you make a little magic charm. And what do you do? You sell it to people, right? And do you ever notice that sometimes in my spiritual journey, if I've got like, do you ever notice if I've got like the Christian thing or maybe even the Christian vocabulary, the Christian lingo, the Christian uh, accessories, then I feel more like a Christian? Do we do that? Right? You know, if I wear my Jesus shirt, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I hope you all wear Jesus shirts. But, so there's nothing wrong with that, okay? Right? Before it's all done, I'll offend everybody. But anyway, so, you know, you got a Jesus shirt. That's awesome. 
Does that glorify? I mean, the idea is, right? And we know this. The idea is to point people to Jesus. But if we're not careful, even in something that's well-intended like that, we might feel more spiritual if we wear a Jesus shirt. Right? Does that make sense? We might feel more spiritual if we use like some $3 theological words. Right? Now, this one I do know we fall for. Right? I don't like $3 theological words. $3 theological words often cause us to have reason to lump people into groups, right? We lump people into groups with our $3 theological words. Well, they're, they're a part of that group, right? Or they're a part of that group, right? You've heard me say before, I know this is an old joke by now. I tell you, I've got nine kids. We homeschool them, right? Live in rural Indiana. You think I drink unpasteurized goat milk. Right? Right? No. Yeah, no. <laughs> if you just met me, right? <laughs> You'd think. I, I was laughing with Nate one time. This, uh, uh, we were at a conference of a bunch of people like us in our group. And uh, they all had a million kids, and, you know, half the kids all had, like, I wouldn't call them leashes, but, you know, pieces of cloth. Okay, nobody was handcuffed. Nobody was handcuffed. But they all had pieces of cloth and they had matching shirts, right? You know, you got these stair-step kids all in matching shirts and, you know, nobody's going to get lost, right? And I remember looking at Nate and I said, listen, at least I never made you wear the matching shirts, right? <laughs> so $3 theological words cause us to put people into groups, right? The magic charms make us feel more spiritual. The Christian bumper sticker makes us feel more spiritual. You know what makes us more spiritual? Being surrendered to the Lord. Following the leading of the Holy Spirit according to the absolute truth of the Word of God. Nothing more, nothing less. Nothing more, nothing less. Therefore, verse 20, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against your magic charms by which you hunt souls there like birds. I will tear them from your arms and let the souls go. The souls you hunt like birds, I will also tear off your veils and deliver my people out of your hand, and they shall no longer be as prey in your hand. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So they're going to know that he is the Lord. Verse 22, Because with lies you have made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. You know, by the way, when we see a watered-down Christianity today, does that make us feel invigorated or sad? When we, see the, when we see the church fall for the tricks of the world, does that make us encouraged? No. My wife, I've got to tell you, she can't read the news. <laughs> She'll ask me about every three days. Anything new in the world? You know, like, no, not really. It's sad to watch the way our world is going.
It's sad to see, and again, I'm not yelling. It's sad to see Christians have 35 Bibles in their home and not be wise to the tricks of the world because they haven't read the Bible. It's sad. I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to survey the pastors of America to ask them how many have read through the Bible cover to cover. I don't want to know that number. I think I'd be mortified. Trace and I were talking to somebody this week, I think our kids. You know, the church we grew up in told a lot of good stories and, and good sermons, right? But we never read through the Bible. You know, so you like you go through, did you ever read, we read Genesis, some of Genesis. Most of Genesis I never knew. Certainly didn't know to stand on the truth of it, right? Exodus, Leviticus, never learned anything about Leviticus. Deuteronomy, no. Joshua, yeah, I think that was where that wall came down at one time, right? Judges, no. First and second Samuel, yeah, I think um, the big tall guy, what's his name, got killed by the rock. Right? I mean, that's how we grew up, right? Psalms, yeah, the Lord is my shepherd. Yeah, I, I know that one psalm, right? Prophecy, are you kidding me? I look today, I read prophecy, and I'm like, whoa, whoa. Does anybody notice that? Anyway, I won't go there. I'll never come back if I go there. <laughs> Prophecy is very relevant today. Okay, I'm going to go there. Does anybody notice that about two weeks ago, Vladimir Putin, anybody know where he traveled to? Where did he go? Iran. Was that on the first article of your news feed, of your Apple news feed? I don't think so. Should it have been? Prophetically? You bet. Ezekiel 38, we'll get to it. When Vladimir Putin goes to Iran, it's getting my attention. When Israel is looking elsewhere for sources of fuel, oil, that's getting my attention. When Israel, oh by the way, which ceased to exist for centuries, is front page news all the time, that gets my attention. Is the Bible relevant? Yeah, does it need to be helped or fixed or amended or made culturally relevant? There's no more culturally relevant book in the world. And the fact that the church has been lulled to sleep makes me sad. Because with lies, you've made the heart of the righteous sad, whom I have not made sad. You've strengthened the hands of the wicked so that he does not turn from his wicked ways, way to save his life. Therefore, you shall no longer envision futility nor practice divination, for I will deliver my people out of your hand, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 14, now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. And so... Um, we read in chapter 8 that some of the elders came to him and uh, wanted to hear from him. And again, you know, sometimes when, you know, 
Christian people, they want to hear good, warm, fuzzy stories, right? So they're going to go to Ezekiel. Maybe he'll give them a good, warm, fuzzy story. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Right? No way. So these people were hypocritical in their attitude. They were coming to Ezekiel like for some wisdom. But God says they've set up idols in their hearts. The idolatry was on the inside. How often do we have idolatry in our hearts that we don't deal with, but we want some Christian wisdom, right? We want somebody to help us with our situation. We want somebody to, to give us counsel or for whatever, but we have idolatry in our hearts. And again, I'm not yelling, but if that's the case... What do we need to do? We need to, not, we need to deal with the idolatry in our hearts. And the only way, the only way to deal with idolatry in our hearts is to what? Repent. The only way to deal with idolatry in our heart is repent. Guess what? The Bible says that. Verse 4, Thus, therefore, speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Every one of the house of Israel who sets up idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are estranged from me by their idols. Notice the idolatry causes them to stumble into iniquity. Don't we see this? Our hearts often lead to our stumbling. That's why the heart, Jeremiah 15, 17 says, is desperately wicked. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. That causes you to stumble into iniquity. Verse 6, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God. What's that word? Repent. Turn away from your idols and turn your faces away from all your abominations. The Jewish people, they wanted to keep worshiping idols, keep worshiping idols and having God as a convenient thing that they could go to when they needed help. It doesn't work that way. We can't have idols and God. We have God or the idols and we can't have them both. And so... Um, Notice this. Jesus said, okay, quiz. Who did Jesus say was basically the, the greatest person ever born of woman? John the Baptist, right? What's the first recorded word in the Bible out of the mouth of John the Baptist? Anybody want to guess? Repent. Repent. Can you imagine that? In a world where today we want to like soften people up and kind of snuggle up to them and make them like us and not call out sin and, you know, make them kind of fill the seats and fill the box and, you know, be nice and kind and gracious. And we should all be nice and kind and gracious, right? What's John the Baptist need to do? He calls them out. He says, repent. It's the first word out of his mouth. You say, well, that's John the Baptist. He was a little radical. The first recorded word of Jesus' public ministry in the New Testament, guess what? Repent. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Jesus, after he's tempted in the desert, says he begins his public ministry, the first word out of his mouth, repent. Matthew 4, 17. Repent is a hard word for us. 
and I'm going to acknowledge this, because we don't like to be told that we're wrong. We don't like to be told that we need to change. But guess what? You got to take the garbage out sometimes. Sometimes you got to take the garbage out. Sometimes you got to knock down the, the, the moldy drywall before you can put up new. That's just the reality. Repent is a word that we all need to be comfortable with. Because God's desire is for, all, is for all of us to be right with Him. And the only way we can be right with Him is to receive the grace offered by Jesus Christ through repentance of our sin. And the fact that we need a Savior. We need to be made, brought from death to life. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 7, for anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who separates himself from me and sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet or to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb, and I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So basically, he's reiterating the same thing. You, you practice hypocrisy, you set up idols in your heart, and then you come to God and ask him for help, guess what? It's not going to work. Verse 9, and if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people Israel. And so this might be a little bit misleading, but this is honestly a piece of God's sovereignty that we, may, we also may not be comfortable with. And that is, you know what? If you want to, if you want to, insist on worshiping idols and you want to go to the prophet that's going to encourage that, God's going to let that prophet encourage that. He's going to let you go down if that's what you insist on. That's the reality. Verse 10, and they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired, that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me nor be profaned anymore with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, says the Lord. And so God wants pure hearts to be serving him. Verse 12, the word of the Lord came to me again saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness. And now he's talking about how he deals with nations, okay? So he's talk, he deals with us as individuals, but he also deals with us as nations, which should be a bit sobering for our culture. When a, man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread and send famine on it and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, this is interesting, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. Now there's a mouthful in there. So what God is saying is, you know, if a land, if a nation, if a culture, if a group of people insists on, on, on persistent unfaithfulness, I'm going to bring punishment on that land. And even if these three righteous guys, these three rock stars of the Scripture were there, Daniel, Job, and Noah, if those three guys were there, they wouldn't save that land. They would just save themselves. So that tells us several things. Number one, those guys, there's always a remnant, right? And he, no matter how bad our culture goes, no matter how bad our nation goes, we can choose to be the faithful remnant, like Daniel, Joah, and Nob. We can choose to be that. We don't have to go the way of the culture. We can go against the flow, right? What else does it tell us? I, I said earlier, you know, Daniel is in Babylon at the time with Ezekiel. He would have been a contemporary. 
But God also says Noah and Job. Wait a minute. I thought Noah was like a, a cartoon story in, in children's Bibles. Noah wasn't like really a historical figure that God Almighty could reference as real, right? Or right? He was, right? You get this? God himself, the words of God here are testifying to the reality of the truth of the Scripture. He doesn't say, you know, even if the story of Noah that we all know to be mythological. No, he says even if the man Noah, the man Daniel, the man Job were on earth when a nation gets, gets judged, they'll save only themselves. They'll preserve only themselves. God is acknowledging the, acknowledging the truth of these guys. God assumes, whenever you read the scripture, God assumes the historical accuracy of every bit of scripture up to that point. You can take that to the bank. Jesus quoted from Deuteronomy all the time. Jesus quoted from the entire Old Testament. I mean, some say, I mean, it depends on how you count it. Some say Jesus quoted from the Old Testament about a hundred times that we have recorded in the, in the Gospels. So these were real historical figures. Verse 15, so God says, I, if I cause if they bring unfaithfulness and I cause uh, famine, then only those three guys are going to uh, survive. And he goes through several, and he basically he kind of reiterates himself. If I cause, verse 15, if I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they empty it and make it so desolate that no man may pass through because of the beasts, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they would only deliver them, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, only they would be delivered and the land would be desolate. So God says, if I bring famine, those three guys, they're just going to you know, they're going to only, uh, uh, they're going to be, survive on their own, but the nation won't, won't survive. If I bring wild beasts, same judgment. Verse 17, or if I bring a sword on that land and say, sword, go through the land, and I cut off man and beast from it, even though these three men were in it, as I live, says the Lord, they would dis deliver neither sons nor daughters, but only they themselves will be delivered. So same, same with famine, same with wild beasts, same with sword. These are the things that destroy nations right? They're judgments of God oftentimes. Notice this, verse 19, or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood and cut off from it man and beast, even though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver only themselves by their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God, verse 21, how much more sh it shall be when I send my four severe judgments on Jerusalem, the sword, the famine, the wild beasts, and the pestilence, to cut off man and beast from it. Yet behold, there shall be left in it, what? A remnant who will be brought out, both sons and daughters. Surely they will come out to you and you will see their ways and their doings. Then you will be comforted concerning the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem, all that I have brought upon it. And they will comfort you when you see their ways and their doings. And you shall know that I have done nothing without cause, that I have done it, says the Lord. So again, this idea of the remnant. We've seen it in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 12, and now chapter 14. There's a remnant. We can take comfort that there's a godly remnant. The world's not going to hell in a handbasket. There's a remnant. God might bring judgment. God might bring uh, famine. God might bring pestilence. God might bring 
sword, God might bring wild beasts to judge a nation, but there's always a remnant. There's always a remnant. There's going to be a remnant that goes back from Babylon to Jerusalem that, we re that we'll read about during the, the times of the Persians. There's a remnant. There's a remnant today. No matter how uh, uh, full of idolatry, of modern-day idolatry, our society gets, even our church gets, the Christian church, there's always a remnant. We want to be that remnant. We want to be a part of that remnant. Chapter 15, just very briefly. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, and I, I'm, I'm including this because I, I believe this is a beautiful way to wrap us up. Son of man, how is the wood of the vine better than any other wood? The vine branch which is among the trees of the forest. Is wood taken from it to make any object? Or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? All right, so we have a, a master woodworking craftsman in the room, right? Do you use grape wood for anything? You order grape wood online, right? Grape vine wood, right? You ever seen grapevine, right? The wood of grapevine, right? You think, eh, I'm going to make a bowl out of that. I'm going to make a charcuterie board out of, out of grapevine wood, right? Do they do that? No. No. And here's the, it's not even good for firewood. They say, I'm going to chop up some grapevine wood and throw it in the fire. It's not even good for that. Interestingly, what is grapevine wood good for? It's good for growing grapes. But only when it's connected to what? The vine. Right? See the idea? And this is what he's talking about. It's interesting that this chapter goes in the context of the things we're talking about during this time of Ezekiel. He said, is wood taken, verse 3, is wood taken from it to make any object, or can men make a peg from it to hang any vessel on? No. Instead, it's thrown into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both ends of it, and in the middle it's, it's burned, and its middle is burned. Is it useful for any work? Indeed, when it was whole, no object could be made from it. How much less will it be useful if, for any work when the fire has devoured it, and it is burned? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. They will go out from one fire, but another fire shall devour them. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. Thus I will make the land desolate because they have persisted in unfaithfulness, says the Lord God. So God says here, these people, these Jewish people, as they reject me by persistent unfaithfulness, they insist on worshiping idols, they're like pieces of grapevine wood, right? What's the value of that? There's none. But what could they have been? They could have been fruitful, fruit-bearing, God-honoring, parts of the vineyard, but instead they chose to be rubbish. Think about that in our lives. Think about that in our lives. Apart from the Lord, we're not quite so valuable as we might think we are. Connected to the Lord, surrendered to the Lord, we bear fruit that brings glory to Him right? John chapter 15, verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much 
fruit. For without me, you can do what? Nothing. Our job on this earth is to not make a lot of money, is to not have a lot of fun. Our job on this earth is simply to bear fruit that would bring glory to God. And our only means of doing that is to abide in Jesus. Our job is to abide, to bear fruit, and the fruit brings glory to God. So, concluding, telling the truth can be hard, but integrity never fails. Can I tell you this? Integrity never fails. Every time I've been challenged to walk in integrity, it seemed like I was up against the wall, right? Like, wow, I'm, I got choice A or choice B. Choice A is integrity. Choice B is yeah, a little marginal integrity. I sure would like to have a choice C, right? We know those situations. Integrity never fails. Number two, there are so many voices of wisdom out there, frankly, or false prophets. We need to be super discerning, and the only way to do that is through the truth of the Scripture. And then finally, our, our purpose in this life is to bear fruit. And our fruit must bring glory to God and not to us. And the only way to bear fruit is to what? Know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody goes to the Father except through him. Nobody bears fruit except by abiding in the vine. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you're so good to us. Lord, you're, the truth of your judgment is real. Consequences of rejecting you are real. Repentance is hard. But Lord, we know that we want to be right with you. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, myself included, that you would show us those ways that we tend to stray from the path a bit, that we would be quick to repent, quick to get back on the right path, quick to look to you, the author and finisher of our faith, and help our lives, Lord, to bring glory to you, that we would bear fruit that would bring glory to you as we abide in you. So please have your way with us. Go before us, Lord. Guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.